Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, my debate with a Church of Christ minister. Most of you are aware that I engaged in a public debate with the Midnight Mormons back in November of 2021, but that is not the first debate that I have engaged in. This is a little-known incident, and I don't think I've mentioned it before, about a debate that I was engaged in back in 1990 with a Church of Christ minister. Now, I had met this Church of Christ minister back in 1989, and as many of you do know, this is at the end of the decade when I was up to my eyeballs in Mormon apologetics. In fact, in the spring semester of 1989, I taught an institute class on the subject of defending the faith, and that is an institute class that I created the curriculum and drew up all 12 lessons. There were no correlated church-produced materials that I was going from. In fact, back in the 1980s, it was extremely frustrating for me because I had spent all this time getting myself ready to be able to debate other people on the subject of Mormonism, and yet at that same time, we were getting multiple directives from Salt Lake City that members of the church were not, repeat, not supposed to be engaging in debates. This was frustrating to me not only because I wanted to debate and I felt like I was ready, willing, and able to debate, But also, I was a bit disappointed because I thought, why is the church acting like it has something to hide, something to be embarrassed of, like it will get its clock cleaned if any of its members ever go out and publicly debate somebody from another religion? Looking back on it now, I see this as yet another instance of the church not having enough faith in its members, or at least faith in this member. Well, this Church of Christ minister had been making a lot of hay at his church in Austin, Texas about the subject of Mormonism. I even had an audio recording of this Church of Christ minister that I played an excerpt from in one of my Defending the Faith classes. So I knew he was making noise at least as early as the spring of 1989. If I'm remembering correctly, there was also an event which he wanted to be a debate, but which the church declined to debate, but they did agree in the stake center in Austin, Texas, to have the stake president or a member of the stake presidency stand up and give his views about religion and then allow this Church of Christ minister to stand up and give his views about religion. Of course, the difference was is that there was no actual interaction between the speakers. There was no discussion. There was no debate. It was simply one speech followed by another speech. But that was as close to debate as the LDS Church was willing to do at the time. So, as it turned out, I moved from Austin, Texas up to Washington in January of 1990. But this Church of Christ minister and I remained in contact, and even though we were not able to set up any kind of an event where we could publicly debate each other, we agreed that we would engage in a written debate, and that this written debate would be published in the Church of Christ magazine. The debate subject itself was quite limited. In fact, the proposition that was brought up by the Church of Christ minister was this. The Bible teaches that it is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind. There were going to be three installments of this debate. The minister would give the first affirmative on this proposition since he is defending this proposition. And I would have a series of three responsive statements called negatives because I am trying to negate the proposition that the minister was defending. I am trying to negate the proposition that the Bible teaches that it is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind. Now, frankly, when this minister proposed this specific proposition, I was over the moon because the Bible never teaches anywhere that it is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind. So I felt that I was on pretty firm footing in this debate. 
The first installment of this debate was published on December 6th of 1990. And actually, it looks like we had engaged in all of our back and forths on this subject, and all of them were published on the same date, December 6, 1990. All three of his affirmatives, all three of my negatives. And these are titled, First Affirmative by the Minister, First Negative by Me, Second Affirmative by the Preacher, Second Negative by Me, Third Affirmative by the Preacher, and Third Negative by Me, all on this same proposition. So apparently there was a lot to say about this issue. So I'm going to start off by reading the very first affirmative by this minister as published in the Church of Christ magazine, December 6, 1990. Here we go. Proposition. The Bible teaches that it is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind. First of all, I want to express my appreciation to Brother Mike Willis for allowing this discussion to take place in the Church of Christ magazine. This paper editor and its staff writer stand to be commended for having the policy that they will open their pages to controversy and the avenue of honorable debate. As I love truth, I love each of them for their proper attitude in regard to such matters. I love the soul of my honorable disputant, I think he's talking about me, and desire only that he would turn from darkness to light, and that all members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he uses the entire name of the church, no victories for Satan there, I desire only that all members would read this with an open heart and in concern for truth. After several months of private correspondence and in hopes of a future public debate, I stand ready to defend the following proposition. Mr. RFM will negate it. The Bible teaches that it is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind. It is only proper that I define the key terms of this proposition. By Bible, I mean the 66 books that comprise the canon of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, called also the Old and New Testaments. By complete, I'm using the word even as Paul did when he wrote to Timothy and spoke of the word of God furnishing a man completely unto every good work, 2 Timothy 3.17, i.e. lacking nothing entire, ended, or finished. By final, I mean of or coming to an end, settled and conclusive. And by revelation, I mean a revealing, a disclosure to man concerning God and his will. Finally, by mankind, I mean a term that is synonymous with the term Jesus used when he commanded, preach the gospel to every creature, and the Apostle Paul's word when he wrote about the gospel being preached in his generation to all creation, thusly fulfilling that command of Christ. Colossians 1.23. I'm not going to read all of these references. I think it's going to get in the way of the flow of the argument. But now that the minister has defined terms, he's going to go on with his first affirmative. Yes, indeed, the Bible teaches that the complete and final word of God was revealed in the first century and that it would be all sufficient and would never perish. Let's notice these truths together. You'll see I'm affecting an accent. This really isn't to make fun of the minister. It's more to make it easier to distinguish what he's writing from what it is I'm writing. Yes, indeed, the Bible teaches that the complete and final word of God was revealed in the first century and that it would be all sufficient and would never perish. Let's notice these truths together. In John 16, 12 through 13, just prior to the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus promised his confused apostles, I have many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Dear reader, either the first century apostles were given all the truth, or Jesus lied about it. This is the same truth mentioned above that was preached unto all nations and to all the world or every creature. This word was spoken and written in the first century as it came from the Holy Spirit, even as Jesus had promised it would be. Paul wrote, 
God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. Paul later wrote to the Galatians, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul also wrote, When you read, ye will understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The apostle John declared, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, and these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Friend, how much plainer could Scripture be? Jesus promised all the truth, and Paul, John, and others said they received it and preached it, and wrote it, so that others could hear, as well as read, the will of God for mankind. As if these truths were not enough, in his short epistle, Jude delivers a crushing blow to any who would believe in modern-day revelation having come or going to come from God. Jude wrote, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The faith mentioned here is the gospel. The word once is from the Greek word hapax and is defined simply as one time for all time. Please notice how it is used in other places in the word of God. The Hebrew writer writes concerning Jesus' death, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice? For this he did once when he offered up himself. We are very interested in what Mr. Radio Free Mormon will say about this. Does Jesus have to keep offering up himself in these latter times? To even think such is wholly absurd, yet Mr. RFM, our Mormon friends, and others believe that the word of God was not one time and for all time delivered and that we are still receiving revelation today. What about the following passage? It has been appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. How many times does a man die physically, Mr. RFM, and how many times will he be judged? The death or offering of Christ was even as man's own death and occurs only once. Jesus told John on Patmos, I am he who was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. In the same way, with the same word, Jude says the truth of God was once delivered. That scripture will stand when this debate is over. You can see he's putting a lot of emphasis on this particular argument. The word of God manifested in the first century makes one free from sin and the servant of righteousness. It also presents every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Anything else is superfluous. In Matthew 24, 35, the Lord Jesus claims incorruptibility for his words more enduring than heaven and earth. And Peter agrees when he writes that the word of God is an incorruptible seed which lives and abides forever. We do not need so-called latter-day revelations, even if they were truth. How appropriate, therefore, it was for James to call the gospel he preached in the first century the perfect law of liberty. The gospel is perfect in that it is flawless, full or complete, and is lacking nothing. Therefore, I stand with firm conviction on this all-sufficient gospel preached in the first century, knowing full well that if any man preach any other gospel, he is accursed.
That's the end of the first affirmative by my good friend, the Church of Christ minister. Now it is time for RFM to have his first turn at bats. Jeez, I'm still talking like the minister. Okay, I got to talk like myself now. The Bible teaches that it is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind. Once again, stating the proposition. That's not part of my answer. Here we go with my answer. I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As such, I believe in continuing extra-biblical revelation from God to man. Indeed, I have been the recipient of such revelation. What I have to say will no doubt receive an unwelcome response from most of the readers of this publication. Nevertheless, the truth must be championed. And the truth is that the Church of Christ minister is wrong, dead wrong, in his assertion that the Bible teaches that it is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind. If the Bible teaches anything, it teaches this, that throughout history, whenever God has had a people on the earth he recognized as his, he has always revealed his will directly to them through living prophets. At no time did God require them to rely solely on the words of dead prophets, This pattern is clear and uncontroverted from Genesis to John on Patmos. Ongoing revelation is the rule. With this in mind, consider the following statement by a Latter-day Apostle of the Lord. A doctrine which rejects new revelation is a new doctrine invented by the devil and his agents during the second century after Christ. It is a doctrine in direct opposition to the one believed in and enjoyed by the saints in all ages. As the doctrine then of continuing revelation is one that was always believed by the saints, it ought not to be required of any man to prove the necessity of the continuation of such a doctrine. It would be the greatest presumption to call it in question at this late date. Instead of being required to prove the necessity of its continuance, all people have the right to call upon the new revelation deniers of the last 18 centuries to bring forward their strong reasoning and testimonies for breaking in upon the long-established order of heaven and introducing a new doctrine so entirely different from the old. If they wish their new doctrine to be believed, let them demonstrate it to be of divine origin, or else all people will be justified in rejecting it and clinging to the old. That's a quote, of course, from Orson Pratt in his article, Divine Authenticity of the Book of Mormon. In his preceding article, The minister has attempted to demonstrate the divine origin of his doctrine, that revelation has been done away, that the heavens are sealed, and that the Bible is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind. In this attempt, the minister has failed miserably. My worthy opponent has cited no less than 22 scriptures, not one of which supports his contention. Instead of presenting strong reasonings for his doctrine, he has given us three arguments, all of which are non-sequiturs. A non-sequitur is an argument in which the evidence does not support the conclusion, or in other words, it is an argument in which the conclusion does not follow from the premise. If an argument is a non-sequitur, it is not valid. All three of the minister's arguments that he advances to support his cause are non-sequiturs and are therefore not valid. I will treat each of the minister's non-sequitur arguments individually. Number one, The minister quotes a number of scriptures to show that the first century Christians possessed the fullness of the gospel. On this point, we are in agreement. I too believe the first century Christians possessed the fullness of the gospel. But that is not the issue. The issue is whether the Bible is the complete and final revelation of God to man. To argue that since first century Christians possessed the fullness of the gospel, the Bible is therefore final and complete, is to promote an argument that is a non sequitur. The conclusion does not follow from the premise. 
The scriptures cited are therefore immaterial to the issues under consideration. For the scriptures cited to be material, the minister must first establish a number of intermediate steps or premises to get from there to his conclusion that the Bible is final and complete. These intermediate steps that he must establish are, one, that the first century Christians who possessed the fullness of the gospel actually wrote it all down, two, that all their writings were collected and put in the Bible, and three, that God suddenly changed his mind and decided that reading the written word were superior to hearing his own voice from the heavens, the pattern which God had followed religiously since the creation of man. Only if these three additional premises can be established can the minister cogently argue that the Bible is final and complete. The minister has not established these three additional premises. Neither can he. Therefore, his first argument fails. Number two, the minister's second argument is based upon the third verse of the epistle of Jude. The minister asserts that the word once, as used in Jude 3, means one time for all time. It is ironic that the minister should state at the beginning of his article that the Bible is complete, meaning lacking nothing, and then, only six paragraphs later, we find him under the necessity of adding words to the third verse of Jude in order to get it to say what he wants it to say. I will not, however, waste valuable space refuting the minister's interpretation of Jude 3, though it is a temptation. The reason? Even if I were to concede to the minister's interpretation of this verse, that the gospel was once and for all delivered to the saints, his argument amounts to nothing more than another non sequitur. The conclusion does not follow from the premise. The three intermediary steps or premises that would need to be established in the minister's first argument to make it valid would similarly need to be established here to make his second argument valid. Without those intermediate premises, the minister's assertion that the gospel was one time for all time delivered to first century Christians is logically distinct and rationally unconnected from his conclusion that the Bible is final and complete. Further, to adopt the minister's interpretation of Jude 3 creates an internal inconsistency within that scripture. The minister argues that once the gospel was delivered, no more revelation was necessary. The Bible was then complete and final. Now, Jude 3 says the gospel was once delivered. Note that the past tense of the word is used, delivered. It is clear from this that the epistle of Jude was written sometime after the faith was delivered. So, what is the inconsistency? Simply this, if the minister's interpretation of Jude 3 is correct, that once the faith was delivered, there was no more need of revelation and the Bible was final and complete, then the epistle of Jude could not be revelation since it was written after the faith was delivered and therefore could not be in the Bible. But such is not the case. The epistle of Jude is in the Bible. The fact that Jude's epistle was written after faith was once delivered to the saints and is yet still found within the Bible completely refutes the minister's interpretation of Jude 3. Finally, number three, the final non sequitur argument advanced by the minister is based on Matthew 24, verse 35 and 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. The minister argues that if the word of God lives and abides forever, the Bible is the complete and final revelation of God. Once again, the conclusion does not follow from the premise. To demonstrate this, let us apply the minister's reasoning to the book of Genesis. Is the book of Genesis the word of God? Yes, surely. Does it therefore live and abide forever? Yes, it does. Then according to the minister's argument, the book of Genesis is the final and complete revelation of God. 
Everything else from Exodus to Revelation is not really revelation at all, but merely a gross imposture. When viewed in this light, the speciousness of the minister's third argument becomes self-evident. In conclusion, the minister has presented three arguments to support his theory. None of his arguments, however, are able to withstand scrutiny. The minister has in reality not advanced one scintilla of evidence that supports his position. In the words of Orson Pratt, since the minister has not been able to demonstrate his new doctrine of no revelation to be of divine origin, all people are justified in rejecting it and clinging to the old biblical doctrine of continuing revelation. To claim that the Bible is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind is to claim something for the Bible, which the Bible does not claim for itself. No, try as you might to prove otherwise, the fact is that your proposition is wrong. The Bible does not teach that it is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind. It might be well at this point to briefly examine why a Church of Christ minister maintains that the Bible is the complete and final revelation of God in spite of the Bible's silence on the matter. The answer is that the Bible is all he has. He receives no revelation from God. This is the true reason the minister asserts that the Bible is complete and final. If the Bible is not the complete and final word of God, and if the minister himself receives no revelation, it is because he is not a true minister of Jesus Christ. As a minister of the Church of Christ, my worthy opponent has a difficult position to defend. We might ask this minister, do you claim to be the same church as that established by Christ 2,000 years ago? Why, yes, of course I do, would be the answer. But do we not read in the Bible that the church Christ established receive ongoing revelation? Well, yes, he would have to answer that is true as well. Does the church of Christ receive ongoing revelation too then? He must answer no. Which would be followed up by the obvious question, why doesn't it? And his answer would be, because all revelation was done away with. The Bible is now the complete and final revelation of God. Oh, comes the next follow-up question. Does the Bible say that? And then he must say, well, no, it doesn't but you must believe it anyway. I conclude with the following. We, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, believe that the Bible is not the complete and final revelation of God. We do not worship the Bible, but rather that God who gave it. We believe that God is loving enough to want to continue to speak to us today, that he is powerful enough to continue to speak to us today, and that he is consistent enough to continue to speak to us today in the same manner he has always spoken to his people throughout the ages, by direct revelation through living prophets and apostles. For surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants the prophets. And that is the end of my first negative in this debate. So now we get to the Church of Christ minister's second affirmative. I think I got a few zingers in there because he seems to be a bit riled up in his second piece. Here we go. In his attempt to present more an affirmative paper instead of a negative, as he should have done, Mr. R.F.M.'s demise rests in his own pen. We remind him that it is the duty of the negative to answer the affirmative's contentions. First, I would encourage each reader to go back through my first affirmative. Look at the arguments presented, the many passages used, as even Mr. R.F.M. confesses, and then look again at how many passages Mr. R.F.M. used and how he used them. We are destined, it appears, to have as Mr. R.F.M.'s authority for his convictions and his writings, so called Latter-day prophets such as Orson Pratt and Mr. R.F.M.'s own personal 
revelation. But who is Orson Pratt that I should hear his voice? And what makes the personal revelation of RFM any more credible than that of Oral Roberts or Jimmy Swaggart? Apparently he's not a fan of Oral or Jimmy. No thanks, I reject them all and stand on the exalted standard once and for all delivered, Jude 3. Mr. RFM loves the term non sequitur. He says that my arguments concerning the Bible being complete and final aren't valid because although the early Christians had a full gospel, which Mr. RFM confesses, that doesn't mean it was the final word of God to man. Because if that were true, God would be contradicting his principle of speaking through living prophets as he always has. There he's quoting me. Mr. RFM has made this his sugar stick in his first negative. I'm not sure what a sugar stick is. I don't think I knew then and I don't know now. But anyway, Mr. RFM has made this his sugar stick in his first negative. You, the reader, saw where he said more than once that God has spoken through living prophets from the Garden of Eden to the present. But now, hold everything. Stop the presses. Let's see who is offering non-sequitur arguments. We challenge Mr. RFM to produce from the Bible where God ever spoke to those in the garden through prophets. Furthermore, we challenge Mr. RFM to show where God spoke to men like Abraham through prophets. It is true God used prophets at different times through the Old Testament era, and no one is, den and no one is denying that. But Mr. RFM's argument is that God has always used living prophets, wholly incorrect. Simply because he used them at different times doesn't mean he has always used them. Mr. RFM's major foundation has cracks in it. God has not always spoken through prophets, and therefore it is non-sequitur to say he does today. Let the Hebrew writer tell us if God speaks through living prophets today. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past, emphasis mine, unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. The Bible says, times past, and through his Son. Radio Free Mormon says that today he speaks through living men who are prophets. It's RFM versus Hebrews. But how does Jesus speak to men today? Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And Peter declares, this is the truth which by the gospel is preached unto you. These first two intermediate steps that Mr. RFM referred to, I did establish. I did it with scripture that he observed the Passover on. As he did not accept them, will he accept these? The Bible is the complete and final revelation of God to man today and was written. And now he's going to quote um, a number of scriptures in one paragraph. It's going to sound a little bit like Elder Oaks talk from the last general conference. Here we go. The Bible is the complete and final revelation of God to man today and was written that men might believe in Christ and have life, that men might know the things which Jesus did and taught, that men might be assured of the testimony of that which they were orally taught, that men might know the commandments of the Lord, that men might understand the mystery of Christ which was revealed to the apostles and prophets, that men might know what the apostle has seen and heard and might have fellowship with God Christ and the apostles and that joy might be full and complete, that men might not sin, that men might remember the teaching of the apostles after their death, that the revelation of the mystery, the gospel, might be manifested unto all nations, unto the obedience of faith. And there, of course, he cites to a number of passages from the New Testament that he feels support his views. Yet, in spite of all these truths, Mr. RFM still thinks we need living prophets. Does he not see that, though the prophets and apostles of the Bible are dead, yet they still speak? In that regard, they are very much alive. 
For God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. How weak a God our Mormon friends must think God is, that he could not give a standard one time for all time, keep it pure, and use it to lead men to salvation. That's not the God that this Church of Christ minister serves. It's ironic indeed that one like Mr. RFM, who believes in continuing revelation, should accuse me of adding words to Jude 3. Well, yeah, that was kind of the point. All that I, all the... <laughs> All that I did was define from the original language the word once. I told you in my first affirmative that this scripture would stand when this debate was over, and Mr. RFM surely proved that it does stand by not answering what I had to say about it. What did he say about the word hapax, one time for all time, and how it is used in other passages, such as Hebrews 9, 27 through 28? Nothing. I'm not surprised. This verse is devastating to the modern who believes in continuing revelations, and they know it. However, it was somewhat amusing to read what he had to say about the verse in general to Mr. RFM, since Jude used the past tense word delivered, and since the gospel was already given, then Jude 3 cannot be used to show there is more revelation in the future. At least he seems to have understood my argument here. Maybe we better look again. Jude writes of the common salvation. Though the gospel had been orally preached in its fullness, inspired men, such as Jude, were still writing it down. Jude was not writing anything that had not been preached orally. He, as Peter, was simply stirring up their remembrance. He was certainly not writing anything different, unlike the so-called modern revelations. Jude was saying that the common salvation is here. It has been delivered, and it will not have to be delivered again and again and again. The word has been confirmed. And prophecy has ceased, just as Paul predicted it would when the perfect revelation was come. Mr. RFM totally missed my point from Matthew 24, 35 and 1 Peter 1, 22-25. It was not the purpose of these passages to show incorruptibility. The word of God by its very nature is incorruptible. It lives and it abides forever. The cry of the modernist is that the reason we need continuing revelation and the reason the Bible cannot be trusted to be the final and complete revelation is because some of the truth of God has been lost. Or to listen to Mr. RFM, it was not all written down. Mormons believe both. The Bible totally rejects this. Again, Jesus promised all truth to his disciples, and Peter affirmed that he preached the same incorruptible truth. Yes, the gospel is all I have, because I trust God to have given me all things that pertain unto life and godliness. We would that Mr. RFM would have such confidence towards God. Confidence in God's word doesn't mean one worships a book. I'm sure along those lines that many Mormons have been accused of worshiping the Book of Mormon, but I'm sure they would deny it. Mr. RFM, was the gospel Peter and the others preached sufficient enough to make them Christians in the first century and lead them to eternal life? If so, why will not the same gospel do the same today? If it will not, why won't it? And that ends with a challenging question to me, the second affirmative from the Church of Christ minister, which of course leads me to my second negative in response to what he just wrote. In my response to the minister's first installment of this debate, I thought I had made my meaning so clear that a wayfaring man, though a fool, need not err therein, Isaiah 35, 8. Obviously, I was mistaken. I have demonstrated as plainly as language permits that none of the three arguments advanced by the minister in support of his proposition are valid. In fact, the minister now admits that his third argument dealt not with finality after all, but with incorruptibility. Incorruptibility, however, is not the issue here. 
finality, and completeness are. In spite of this, the minister either refuses to acknowledge or is incapable of understanding why his arguments do not support his contention. Instead, he has decided to engage in a number of somewhat deceptive rhetorical techniques designed to cloud the issue for the unwary reader. In his first paragraph, the minister intimates that since he employed more passages of scripture than I, he must be right. Is this the argument of a thinking man? Perhaps the minister had forgotten that it is his task to prove that the Bible teaches it is the complete and final revelation of God. To do this, it is only natural he should quote from the Bible. My task, on the other hand, is to show that his arguments are unfounded. To do this requires no scripture, but only a modicum of common sense. In paragraph 2, the minister goes so far as to quote words I did not write and attribute ideas to me that are not mine. In responding to the minister's arguments, I use no sugar stick. The minister's arguments concerning the Bible's being complete and final aren't valid simply because they are not valid. I need no sugar stick to make that point. Incidentally, I do not love the term non sequitur half so much as the minister loves to use them in his arguments. In paragraph 3, the minister accuses me of using a non sequitur argument. He then challenges me to produce from the Bible where God ever spoke to those in the garden or Abraham through prophets. Apparently, the minister is not aware that a prophet is one to whom God reveals his will personally. Amos 3.7 Apparently, the minister is also not aware that God revealed his will personally to Adam in the garden and to Abraham. Therefore, Adam and Abraham were both prophets themselves, to whom and through whom God revealed his will. Instead of weakening my position that God has always spoken to his people through living prophets, the minister's challenge has served only to strengthen it. It is interesting that later on in his response, in another context, the minister quotes Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, which specifically states that God did indeed speak in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, thus proving false his claim that God has not always spoken through prophets. In all fairness to the minister, though, it must be admitted that the Bible does speak of a group of people who, like himself, believed all the true prophets were dead, that God no longer speaks through living prophets, and that everything God ever said was written down and contained between the covers of a sacred book. Unfortunately for the minister, however, that group of people who shared his beliefs was none other than the Pharisees. In fact, it was precisely because they built the tombs of the dead prophets, but rejected the living bearers of God's word, that Christ excoriated them in Matthew chapter 23. So we see that not only does the minister's position put him out of step with every prophet of the Bible, Adam and Abraham included, it also lands the minister squarely in the rank and file of the group primarily responsible for the crucifixion of the Savior. The minister next quotes Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 to the effect that since God spoke by prophets in time past, this must mean he ceased using that modus operandi once Jesus came in the flesh. Such a conclusion is not only unwarranted by the scripture cited, it is also at complete variance with the words of Christ himself, who stated he would send prophets subsequent to his death. That can be found in Matthew 23, 34. Now to the fourth paragraph of the minister's second installment. No, you did not establish any of the three, not two as you say, intermediary steps outlined in my first response, without which your arguments are non sequiturs, nor do any of the nine scriptures you quote establish them, as a cursory examination of each will reveal. 
And no, it is not that I am observing the Passover on your strong arguments. It is simply that one is under no obligation to seriously discuss nonsense. None of the scriptures you have quoted in either of your two installments even begins to establish that, number one, the leadership of the early church wrote all the truth they had down, two, that all the books they wrote it down in were compiled into the Bible, or three, that for some reason God decided to suddenly change his pattern of revealing his will to men by ceasing to speak from heaven and letting an inanimate book do the work for him. In fact, the very first of these elements of the minister's argument that he has failed to establish that the leadership of the early church wrote all the truth they had down is controverted by such passages as the following. John 16, 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Acts 10, 41, not unto all the people, but unto witnesses chosen. Acts 15, 28, for it seemed good to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Clementine recognitions, which things were plainly spoken, but not plainly written. And then another passage from the Clementine recognitions, I give the sites here. I, Peter, endeavor to avoid publishing the chief knowledge concerning the supreme divinity to unworthy ears. Innumerable passages on this head might be cited, but I must move on to other matters. In his fifth paragraph, the minister informs us by means of two rested verses and a scriptural rail split that the dead prophets are not really dead, but are alive and well due to the fact that they wrote books. This line of thought falls short of being persuasive, or even coherent for that matter. It is hard for me to believe that the members of this minister's congregation actually are willing to trust someone with so great a dearth of mental ability to lead them in the path of salvation. Wow, ad hominem much? I wouldn't trust him to mow my lawn. <laughs> oh my gosh, no wonder he was getting a little bit exercised with me. I wouldn't trust him to mow my lawn. Yes, I wrote that. If the minister's arguments are considered logical, then I am led to exclaim with Shakespeare's Mark Anthony. Gee, Shakespeare showing up back in 1990. O judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Let me say that like Richard Burton. O judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. In his sixth paragraph, the minister returns to harp on his non-sequitur argument based on Jude 3. He clearly fails to understand why I don't care what hapax means or how it is used in other scriptures, even though I plainly stated my reasons in my first response. Look, I'll talk slow. Read my lips. Even if hapax means one time for all time, it doesn't prove the Bible is the complete and final word of God. The only way it can be logically interpreted to mean what the minister claims is if one makes the mistake of equating the faith-slash-gospel, which was delivered one time for all time, with the Bible. But the gospel is not the Bible, contrary to what the minister seems to believe. The Bible is a collection of sacred books. The gospel, on the other hand, is the good news of Christ's resurrection and atonement, which was indeed delivered one time for all time, even as Jude declares. The only way the minister can use this scripture to support his position is by ignoring what it says. Also, I argued in my first response that if we follow the minister's interpretation of Jude 3, then the epistle of Jude cannot be part of the Bible since it was written after the gospel had been delivered, past tense. The minister attempts to weasel out of his predicament, by saying, though the gospel had been orally preached in its fullness, inspired men as Jude were still writing it down. 
Of course, the minister's excuse in no way explains why John the Beloved should be receiving a cartload of brand new revelation on Patmos many years after Jude wrote his epistle. I suppose this means that not only Jude, but also the book of Revelation cannot be part of the Bible according to the minister's interpretation of Jude 3. The minister would have been wise to leave Jude alone. The minister writes, Jude writes of the common salvation. Is that a fact? And just where does Jude write about this important subject? You will not find it in the Bible, for Jude says he wrote about the common salvation in an epistle prior to the one we have in the Bible. Can the Bible really be complete without this important missing epistle of Jude? Obviously not. Later, Jude refers to a story about Moses not found anywhere in the Old Testament. That's Jude verse 9. Why is that? Because the book from which Jude quotes is called the Assumption of Moses and is not contained in the Old Testament. Evidently, Jude thought it good enough scripture to quote in his epistle, so why is it not in the Bible? Because the Bible is not complete. Still later, Jude quotes from another ancient source, this one involving a prophecy of Enoch. That's Jude verses 14 through 16. This quote comes from the book of Enoch. Both the book of Enoch and the assumption of Moses were clearly considered good scripture by Jude, one of the original disciples. Being a disciple, we can only assume his missing epistle in which he talked about the common salvation was good scripture as well. Since these books of scripture are not in the Bible, it can only mean one thing. The Bible is not complete, and the minister is wrong in contending that it is. Nor are these three books alluded to by Jude the only books of Scripture mentioned in the Bible but not found in the Bible. Other such missing books of Scripture include the Book of the Covenant, the Book of the Wars of the Lord, the Book of Jasher, the Book of the Acts of Solomon, the Book of Samuel the Seer, the Book of Nathan the Prophet, the Acts of Abijah and the Story of the Prophet Iddo, the Book of Yehu, the sayings of the seers, another epistle to the Corinthians, another epistle to the Ephesians, and an epistle to the church of Laodicea. I give all the references in that paragraph. With no fewer than 16 books of scripture referred to by the Bible yet not included within its pages, the fact that the Bible is not complete becomes incontrovertible. The minister is simply mistaken in his assertion that the Bible is the complete word of God, and his error is made manifest by none other than the Bible itself. Period. End of my second negative in this fascinating, dramatic, written debate between Radio Free Mormon and this Church of Christ minister from Austin, Texas. I certainly said a number of insulting things in that second negative. We'll see if the Church of Christ minister takes the bait in his third and last affirmative on this subject. Here we go. It is the responsibility of any affirmative in a debate to prove the proposition he is affirming to be true. It has not been a difficult matter to prove that the Bible is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind. The Bible does not need me or any other man to prove that. The Bible defends itself. All I need do is point any interested person to the passages that show such. I have done just that. Mr. Radio Free Mormon says he doesn't need to use the Bible to prove it is not the final and complete revelation of God to mankind. Yet, that's precisely what he signed his name to do, to discuss what the Bible teaches. Of course, we knew from earlier statements that Mr. RFM has no interest in what the Bible teaches. We knew it from his statements about modern prophets and personal revelation. 
Dear reader, just mark it down that when a person starts talking about personal revelation and Latter-day Prophets, he has tossed the Bible out the window. He couldn't care less what the Bible says. If you don't think Mr. RFM feels this way, look at what he has just written. In his attempts to attack me instead of the argument, and of course that's a lot easier since the arguments are nonsense, isn't that clear? He demeaningly equates the Bible to the sacred book of the Pharisees. He even says, and you read it yourself, that the Bible is inanimate, which means dull or empty. (laughs) Oh my God, what dictionary is he using? Now, we know the real RFM, don't we? Now, we know why the Mormon church has its very own Bible, because the one God gave just isn't good enough. It is unthinkable that a man professing faith in God would want such an attitude known openly, and I have a sneaking suspicion that when the powers that be in Salt Lake City read his statements, they may have somewhat to say to Mr. RFM. Well, they might have something to say to me today, but it'd probably be for a different reason. Anyway, going on. Most Mormons I have conversed with in the past 25 years at least manifest some respect for the Bible. Their own writings reveal this. Now he's quoting from a tract that the LDS Church put out. The Bible as now translated is one of the marvels of the ages and is revered and devoutly believed by the Latter-day Saints. How did you like the way Mr. RFM handles the challenges concerning God talking to Adam and Abraham through prophets? Mr. RFM just waved his magic wand and Hocus pocus, he made Adam and Abraham prophets themselves. How convenient. However, where does the Bible call them prophets? Now, we will not get an answer to that since Mr. RFM says he doesn't need the Bible. He only needs his common sense. However, Mr. RFM speaks with forked tongue and can't seem to make up his mind when to use the Bible and when not to use it. He will use the Bible or misuse it when it seems to help his position. And so he gave Amos 3.7. However, if that passage is teaching God never ever spoke except through prophets, then Mr. RFM himself is a prophet, since he says that God speaks also to him. And what does this do to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, which says that he now speaks not through prophets anymore, but through his son? Anyone believing any of this common sense or half-Bible approach? I really believe our readers are more intelligent than Mr. RFM gives them credit for. Well, really, they'd almost have to be, wouldn't they? Uh, We reject any man's personal revelation as being from God when it conflicts with that revelation, which indeed has proven itself as being from God. Mr. RFM has the problem his founding father, Joseph Smith, had, that being his revelation conflicts with plain Bible teaching. From Mormon writers themselves comes their own judgment. Now he's going to quote from Joseph L.D. Smith, Doctrines of Salvation. The doctrines of false teachers will not stand the test when tried by the accepted standards of measurement, the scriptures. Oh, Right there, that is one of those places, sorry, I'm breaking in here. That is one of those places where Joseph Fielding Smith was talking about the purpose of the standard works being to measure the truth of anything said by anybody. And if they don't measure up to the standard works, they should be rejected. That's the context for him saying, the doctrines of false teachers will not stand the test when tried by the accepted standards of measurement, the scriptures. Mr. RFM is having a hard time with Hebrews 1, 1, and 2, isn't he? I really think I can read his lips better than he can read God's word. Boy, I really am getting to him, aren't I? Hebrews 1, 1, and 2 says nothing about Jesus in the flesh. Mr. RFM added that, and we encourage him to quit adding to the scriptures. What it does say in that context is that God now speaks through his son, and this Jesus is at the right hand of God. 
So it is obvious that when Jesus talked about sending prophets after his death, this would be only until they helped reveal the complete revelation, and then they in prophecy would cease, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Mr. RFM adds to the scriptures, observes the Passover on 1 Corinthians 13, says nothing about the question I proposed about Christians being saved in the first century with what was being delivered, and yet has the nerve to call me a Pharisee. I knew that would get him. Amazing. I have learned over the years that when a man is in trouble with his position, he then begins the ad hominem tactics. That is, the name-calling and innuendo. Did not the Pharisees do this with Jesus when they could not forthrightly answer him? Who is really acting like a Pharisee? I seek honorable debate. Mr. RFM, we are persuaded better things of you. Yeah, I've heard that before, even recently. I'm a constant disappointment to so many people. Once again, Mr. RFM likes to quote the Bible only when he thinks it will help him. Otherwise, he falls back on his common sense. This was a tactic used by Satan in tempting Jesus. However, if Mr. RFM is having problems quoting the Bible, that should not surprise us, for he can't even accurately quote me. Look back and see where I said the leadership of the early church wrote all the truth they had down. Did I say that? Where did I say it? Oh, Mr. RFM, thou that challenges me to read thy lips had best learn to read thyself. What I said was, and please get it this time, Jesus promised them all truth via the Holy Spirit. I never said they wrote everything down. Why, oh, this is going to come back to haunt him. Why the, world, <laughs> why the world could not contain the books that could have been written. Now understand, for this is exactly my position. They did not write every single last incident down, but rather they wrote all the truth that makes men free from sin and the servant of righteousness. They wrote down all the people needed to appreciate all things that pertain unto life and godliness. So your misuse of John 16:12 was wasted space. He would not teach them then and there, but would send the Holy Spirit to be the teacher. The witnesses of Acts 10:41, Peter says, are these same men of John 16. Peter says, us, that is, those who did eat and drink with him after that he rose from the dead. If Mr. RFM would have quoted all the verse, he surely would have seen this. Acts 15:28 is a verse for me, Mr. RFM. It proves my point exactly. They could have written a whole lot more than they did, but God saved for us those necessary things. Thanks for the help. I will not comment on Clementine, as it is not of inspired origin. I don't think I need to. The point is obvious. They had all the truth they needed, and so do we in the exact same things they wrote. Tell us in your last installment, please, Mr. RFM, were the Romans saved in Romans 6? Can we be saved like them if we obey what they obeyed? We know that they were saved, and we also know what saved them. All of this before Joseph Smith and his false doctrines ever plagued mankind. I rest my salvation in what the Romans obeyed, not in the meanderings of a man impressed with his own personal revelations and common sense. In like manner, and here Mr. RFM goes again, he has me saying that the dead prophets are not really dead. Come on, Mr. RFM, we believe you can read better than this. They surely are dead physically. But God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Why don't you explain what the passage means instead of poking fun at me? Well, obviously, because poking fun at you is so much more fun. They are not alive physically because they wrote books, but they are alive. Or that is, their spirits exist, don't they? Or does Mormonism agree with the Jehovah's Witness false doctrine of once dead, you cease to exist? Now, get it, RFM. <laughs> 
Now get it, RFM. Though dead, they yet speak. Did you get it this time? Why not deal with a Hebrew passage also? I guess it's easier to poke fun. Well, at least we agree on something. Now, if they still speak, then we don't need actual physical alive prophets, do we? I'll take the prophets and apostles of the Bible, thank you, not some self-appointed ones who have devised their own priesthood, plan, and human church. After the slaughter of what I said, Mr. RFM then has the gall to mock my mentality, call into question the mentality of the congregation where I preach, and concludes that he wouldn't trust me to mow his lawn. Yes, I knew that was going to bother him. However, you have made one very notable contrast again between us and Mormons. The congregations where we preach do not follow men, Mr. RFM. We all simply try to follow Jesus Christ, whom God speaks through today. Jesus is our only prophet, high priest, and king. We need no other. If I were you, Mr. RFM, I would try listening more to him and less to Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, Orson Pratt, Clementine, your own personal feelings, or William Shakespeare. Okay, that last part, that was uncalled for. That was the most unkindest cut of all, dissing my use of William Shakespeare. Here we go with Jude 3. I told you this verse was insurmountable to the modern who believes in Latter-day Revelation, didn't I? Mr. RFM isn't quite sure what to do with this verse. First, he tells us, I don't care what hapax means, Greek word for once, or how it is used in other scriptures. Well, we already knew that. Mr. RFM proves what I said earlier about those believing in modern revelation not caring about what the Bible says. However, then he spends the rest of his negative talking about Jude 3. For a fellow who doesn't care how the word once in the verse is used, that's rather hard to reconcile. Now, it has happened. By the way, I haven't been telling you all the exclamation points that are peppered in all of the Church of Christ ministers' writings. It's like every line, maybe every other line. I'm not sure if I'm reading a debate or a comic book. Now it has happened, exclamation point. You see, this is happening all over the place. I mention it now just so you can get more of a flavor that when I'm reading this in such hyperbolic tones, it is indicated to be hyperbolic by the repeated use of the exclamation points. Now it has happened. I knew Jude 3 would cause it, another exclamation point. In reality, Mr. RFM concedes the debate by stating the only way it, Hapax, can be logically interpreted to mean what the minister claims is if one makes the mistake of equating the faith-slash-gospel which was delivered one time for all time with the Bible. Mr. RFM has set in condemnation over the Apostle Paul. Paul surely equates the faith with the gospel, not only in Romans, but also in 1 Corinthians. Why? Because the gospel is a whole lot more than the atonement and resurrection of Christ. It takes more than just believing in those matters to obey and live the gospel of Christ. And John obviously believed that when he wrote about the doctrine of Christ. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about the promises of the gospel, which include fellowship with God, a spiritual family or church, and a complete and mature spiritual knowledge of Christ. There's surely a whole lot more there than just the crucifixion of Christ. Where is the salvation of Christ and the gospel to the early church recorded? Again, we must ask about not only the Romans, but the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, and all the rest. Were they saved? How do we know they were? Can we obey what they obeyed? Sure, because in the same book where we know they are saved, we can read how they were saved. Is Mr. RFM having problems with the canonicity of the Bible? I think it obvious he is. Sir Frederick Kenyon 
One of the greatest authorities in the field of New Testament textual criticism has stated, it cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance our text of the Bible is certain, especially is this the case with the New Testament. This can be said of no other ancient book in the world. The manuscripts of the New Testament are counted by hundreds and even thousands. Mr. RFM may think he has given us a new revelation by telling us that the book of Revelation was written after Jude, but I think our readers already knew that. This in no way hinders the veracity of Jude 3, for as I explained before, these men were both still existent in the first century when inspiration was also existent. However, when the perfect law of liberty was come, then such spiritual gifts, including revelation and inspiration, ceased. Mr. RFM then tells us Jude is quoting the assumption of Moses. I think it is the assumption of Mr. RFM on it being the assumption of Moses. What do you think? But since Jude didn't put that assumed book in his writings, poor old Jude makes the Bible incomplete. This is clear as mud. And if Mr. RFM expects his lawn to be mowed, I think we can safely say he will have to mow it, for he will not be able to employ anyone to do so. Mormonism is notorious for creating other books which never existed or were supposedly found years later. Let's clear up this missing book mystery, shall we? We deny Jude doesn't write about the common salvation, even as he confirms that which had already been written by others. Take a close look at the book. He writes about being preserved in Christ, blemished souls of old time and among yourselves, judgment of Christ. Yet after all this, Mr. RFM says that Jude doesn't write about the common salvation. Mr. RFM has the verse saying, I wrote unto you, past tense, in the assumption of Moses, instead of what it does say, I gave all diligence to write, present tense. No, Mr. RFM will need more than a last negative installment to get himself out of this mess. As you read it, be mindful that the last negative is forbidden to introduce any new material. (laughs) Like I'm going to play by the rules. As you read it, keep the proposition before you, for indeed, the Bible is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind. Last but not least, see if RFM answers the questions. Were the Romans saved in Romans 6, and can we be saved like them today by obeying what we can read and know they obeyed? We thank God for his word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. This word enables us to save our souls like they in the first century and to oppose and expose false prophets like Joseph Smith and Radio Free Mormon, though they may even claim that what they have received be given by an angel from heaven. There's the end of the third affirmative, setting me up for the last word on the subject. Since I'm the negative, I get to go last, and here I go. I will respond to the minister's third affirmative paragraph by paragraph. Paragraph number one. The minister is in error when he says, I agreed to use the Bible to prove it is not the final and complete revelation of God to mankind. As I said in a previous installment, the minister has the burden of proving by the Bible that it is final and complete. All I need to do to fulfill my part of the bargain is to show the faulty reasoning and misinterpreted scriptures the minister uses to support his proposition. Once this is done, the minister fails in establishing his proposition as true, and I succeed in my mission of negating it. The minister must quote scriptures to advance his proposition. To negate it requires, as I said, no scripture, but only common sense. Next, the minister attempts to demonstrate how little I think of the Bible by means of an orgy of word twisting that would have done the Pharisees proud. (laughs) The minister says, I demeaningly equate the Bible to the sacred book of the Pharisees. 
since the sacred book of the Pharisees was the Old Testament, which itself comprises fully two-thirds of the Bible, I fail to see how this reference could be styled demeaning. What I demeaned was not these sacred books, but rather the manner in which the Pharisees and the Church of Christ minister view them as substitutes for ongoing revelation through living prophets. The minister then claims I called the Bible inanimate, which means dull or empty. The minister is really stretching for this one. Whereas I did call the Bible inanimate, I did so purely in the commonly understood meaning of the word, not endowed with life or spirit. Webster's Seventh Dictionary. And surely the Bible is inanimate in the sense I used the word. At least mine is. Perhaps the minister's Bible struts and frets its hour upon the stage, but mine lies peacefully on the shelf when I set it there. So contrary to the minister's base allegations, I do revere the Bible, and I think that my reverence is evidenced by the fact that I do not make claims for the Bible, which the Bible does not make for itself, a tactic the Church of Christ minister engages in regularly. Paragraph number two, Adam and Abraham were indeed prophets. I prove this to be the case using scripture from the Bible in a logical manner. If this process seems to the minister to be hocus pocus, I am less than surprised. Paragraph number three, the minister states that if Amos 3.7 is true, I must be claiming to be a prophet myself since I claim personal revelation. Here the minister may be closer to the mark than anywhere else in this entire debate. Unfortunately, for the minister, according to the Bible, the fact that he claims no personal revelation brands him as a false teacher of the gospel. That this is so was made clear by Joseph Smith. If any person should ask me if I were a prophet, I should not deny it, as that would give me the lie. For according to John, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation 19.10 Therefore, Joseph Smith goes on, if I profess to be a witness or teacher and have not the spirit of prophecy, which is the testimony of Jesus, I must be a false witness. But if I be a true teacher and witness, I must possess the spirit of prophecy, and that constitutes a prophet. And any man who says he is a teacher or a preacher of righteousness and denies the spirit of prophecy is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And by this key, false teachers and imposters may be detected. If I may say so, this is me now, if I may say so, it appears that by this key, a false teacher and imposter has indeed been detected, and it is none other than our friend, the minister of the Church of Christ. Paragraph number four. We now deal with the minister's strained interpretation of Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. In his preceding paragraph, he claimed the passage in question states that God speaks not through prophets anymore, but through his son. Even a cursory examination of the passage, however, shows it says nothing of the sort. Rather, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 states simply that the same God who spoke to the prophets in Old Testament times had spoken in New Testament times through his son. This in no way intimates that God would cease to speak through prophets. Indeed, as I said before, Christ himself proclaimed he would send prophets subsequent to his death. The minister's second problem with Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, is trying to make a phrase that is clearly past tense into the present tense. The minister wishes the verse to read, God now speaks through his son. But the plain language of the scripture is, God has spoken unto us by his son. I am at a loss as to how this minister can misinterpret a plainly past tense statement such as this to be present tense. Perhaps the answer lies in necessity. For if the passage is past tense, as it clearly is, then the minister's arguments based upon it are demolished. Necessity is the mother of invention. 
Paragraph number five. There is nothing much to comment on here except that if the minister thinks that name-calling and innuendo are reserved only for one who is in trouble with his position, I can only assume that charge applies equally to John the Baptist, Matthew 3.7, Paul, Acts 23.3, and Jesus Christ himself, Matthew 16.23 and 23.29-32. Name-calling and innuendo aren't necessarily the result of one's having trouble with one's position. It can also result from extreme frustration caused by the stubborn refusal of pompous individuals. <laughs> oh my gosh. It can also result from extreme frustration caused by the stubborn refusal of pompous individuals to listen to reason. This is why so many wars start over religion. Paragraph number six. Once again, the minister is in error. I never suggested he said that the leadership of the early church wrote all the truth they had down. I know he didn't say that. And that is precisely his problem. How can the minister rationally expect us to accept that the Bible is complete without even trying to show that the leadership of the early church at least wrote down all the truth they had? Unwritten books certainly cannot be found in the Bible. And it is questionable as to how much good unwritten truth does the minister today. As I've said twice previously, in order to successfully prove his proposition, the minister must not only demonstrate that the Holy Spirit led the early disciples into all truth, a belief we share, but he must also demonstrate that all the truth was written down, which he has failed to prove, that all the written down truth made it into the Bible, which he has failed to prove, and that God inexplicably chose to change his ways and stop revealing his will directly to men through revelation, which he failed to prove. The minister has had three installments in which to prove these essential elements of his proposition, but he has not done so, since the minister is incapable of bringing forth the evidence necessary to establish his proposition that the Bible is the complete and final revelation of God to men. Why should any right-minded person feel obliged to believe him? The Church of Christ's minister says the early disciples wrote all the truth that makes men free from sin and the servant of righteousness and cites Romans 6.17 as support for his statement. Setting aside the fact that the minister meant to cite Romans 6.18, anyone who wishes to take the briefest glance at the scripture under consideration will immediately note that it does not stand for the minister's proposition at all. It says nothing about the disciples having written down all necessary truth. This is purely the minister's wishful thinking. Such has been his pattern from the beginning, to quote half a scripture here and half a scripture there in order to give the false impression that his views are biblical. If the minister could find enough dupes who are willing to take his word for what the scriptures say without checking it out for themselves, he could be the minister of a congregation. (laughs) Oh my gosh, he could be the minister of a congregation. After all, in the kingdom of the blind, the man with one eye is king. (laughs) Oh my gosh. If anyone will take the time to check the minister's references against his interpretations, they will see what palpable rubbish the minister is spouting. I have already given a number of examples of this sort of thing. I am only sorry I haven't space to expose them all in the detail they deserve. Before proceeding, I must remark on the humorousness of the minister's referring to the apostolic father Clement as Clementine. I should have thought one who proclaims to be a minister of Christ's church would have known Clement was a disciple of the apostle Peter. Clement was therefore in an excellent position to quote Peter as he did to the effect that the most sacred truths were not written down or vouchsafed to the uninitiated. For the minister to dismiss out of hand the Clementine recognitions as not of inspired origin and therefore not worthy of his notice is juvenile. 
and shows he hasn't done his homework. In short, the minister is remaining true to form. <laughs> oh, I was spicy back then. Some things don't change, I guess. Paragraph number seven. The minister gives us another example of twisting scripture to suit his ends. If anyone is deceived by the minister's lame attempt to fuse Matthew 22:32 and Hebrews 11:4 into a good reason for rejecting living prophets, they may pick up their Pharisee membership card at the door on the way out. I have nothing more to say to them. Then the minister again misuses Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. He says he tries to follow Jesus Christ, whom God speaks through today. The minister is still confusing his past with his present tense. Further, the minister has made it abundantly clear he doesn't believe that God speaks through Christ today. He believes God speaks through the Bible instead. Hardly the same thing at all. The Mormons are the ones who believe God still speaks through Jesus Christ not the Church of Christ minister, he must have become confused in the heat of battle as to which side he was representing. Paragraphs numbers 8, 9, and 10. Here, the minister attempts to use my own statement against me. By means of a small miracle, he correctly quotes my statement that one would have to make the mistake of equating the faith or gospel of Jude 3 with the Bible in order for the minister's argument to make any sense. After having seized upon my statement, the minister almost pops a vein, showing not that the faith slash gospel is equivalent to the Bible as I said he must, but instead that the faith is equivalent to the gospel. I am perfectly aware that the faith may be equated with the gospel. The minister has evidently been debating too long and has entirely missed the point of my argument. I refuse to waste space here, repeating that argument, but refer the reader back to my second installment where I originally set it forth. Though he took a mighty swing, the minister did not even so much as lay a glove on that argument. Paragraph number 11. There are two things overlooked in the minister's quote from Frederick Kenyon. One, none of the hundreds and even thousands of the manuscripts of the New Testament are originals. They are copies of copies of copies, and thus their reliability is put into question. Number two, none of these thousands of manuscripts are identical. They all differ from each other to some extent some to a substantial degree. Now, whether it was Mr. Kenyon who withheld this information from the reader or an injudicious quote from the minister did the trick, I do not say. Nevertheless, both the above factors contribute heavily to our lack of certainty as to the accuracy of the text of the Bible in its present form. Paragraph number 12. The minister cites 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10, about which he earlier said that I observed the Passover and gave his interpretation of that passage as meaning that once the disciples revealed the complete revelation, read Bible, then prophets and prophecy would cease. I trust that no one will be shocked at this late date to find that the minister is once again reading into the scripture things that are not there. The other night upon the stair, I saw a man who wasn't there. No, I actually wrote that. In the debate, the other night upon the stair, I saw a man who wasn't there. The scripture cited states, When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part, prophecy, etc., shall be done away. The key question is, what is meant by that which is perfect? The minister jumps to the erroneous conclusion that it must mean the Bible. But this is not the case. The above verse must be taken in context with verse 12. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Having the gifts of prophecy and revelation is not the perfect order. It is like seeing through a glass darkly. The perfect order is not, as the minister thinks, to have a book which becomes the last will and testament 
of his mute God, but to have the Savior here personally, to be in his presence, to behold him face to face. When the Savior comes, there will be no more need for revelation and prophecy. He will tell us all things personally. But revelation and prophecy are to continue in the Lord's church until the return of the Son of God, until we see face to face, until that which is perfect, i.e. Christ himself, is come. Inasmuch as the Savior has not yet returned, we should still expect to find the gifts of prophecy and revelation in God's true church. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints professes to have these gifts of the Spirit. The Church of Christ does not. Okay, I'm on the clubhouse turn here, heading for the home stretch. The rest of the paragraphs. I'm afraid that, as with his lack of knowledge of Clement, the minister's ignorance of the assumption of Moses does him no credit. It wouldn't be so bad if he simply hadn't heard of these things. It's the way in which he flaunts his ignorance that is so disquieting. The Reverend writes, Mormonism is notorious for creating books which never existed. Well, Mormonism did not create all the books of Scripture that are missing from the Bible. The Bible did that all by itself, as I demonstrated at length in my previous installment. Then the minister gives us this heartening statement, Let's clear up this missing book mystery, shall we? Sad to say, the minister does not follow through on his suggestion. He does not clear up the mystery at all. Save for the missing epistle of Jude, he doesn't even attempt to give an explanation to this problem. Since the minister doesn't even mention any of the other many missing books from the Bible, I can only conclude that he concedes the issue and is at a loss to give a satisfactory answer to this problem that is so devastating to his proposition. As to the minister's attempt to solve the mystery of the missing epistle of Jude by showing that no such epistle existed, he once again falls into his own snare of confusing past tense with present tense. He quotes from Jude, I gave all diligence to write, and then has the audacity to label this as present tense. I do not know where this minister attended school, but it might be in order to fire the English teacher at that institution, since he or she was apparently unable to teach this minister that gave is the past tense of the verb give. Without this missing epistle of Jude or any of the other missing epistles and books mentioned previously, the Bible can in no sense be considered complete as the minister claims, and his attempt to solve this mystery has only left the waters more muddied than at the outset. Finally, we get to the minister's last question, the question he thinks is the death knell to continuing revelation. Were the Romans saved in Romans 6, and can we be saved like them today by obeying what we can read and know they obeyed? Of course, this question has nothing to do with whether God continues to reveal his will to men from heaven. However, the straight answer to the proposed question is an unqualified no. This is so because we don't know that what we are reading is all the truth the Romans had, and the minister has failed to bring forth one iota of evidence to show that it is. Further, we cannot know what they obeyed from the Bible alone, although the minister likes to think he does. I think this is most clearly shown by the fact that there are over 300 denominations of Christian churches in this country alone, all of them differing as to what the Bible says. The reason these sects are so hopelessly divided is because their interpretations of the scripture come not from God, but are their own private inventions. This in spite of the admonition of Peter, no scripture is of any private interpretation. In order for an interpretation to be correct, therefore, it must be given of God. The minister's interpretation cannot be from God, 
since he claims no revelation. His interpretation can therefore only be private, showing that not only does he proceed contrary to Peter's warning, but also that the minister cannot know what the Romans obeyed and the means whereby they were saved solely by means of his private interpretation of the scriptures. Indeed, this has been the problem with Protestantism all along. They pick up the Bible and try to recreate what their private interpretations tell them once existed. They then proclaim their new church to be the true church of Christ. This is foolishness. It is as if to say that one could attempt to duplicate da Vinci's The Last Supper and once completed to claim to have created an original work by da Vinci. No, the only person who can create the church of Christ is Christ himself, not Alexander Campbell or any other man. Men through searching cannot find out God. God must reveal himself to mankind or remain forever unknown. How long will it take for this minister to understand the deep import of the psalmist's declaration? Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. But the Lord has built his house again and restored his true church to the earth. He did it himself through a prophet of God, the same way he always operated in biblical times. That church is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and his prophet was Joseph Smith. The Church of Christ minister has failed to establish his proposition that the Bible is the complete and final revelation of God to mankind. He did not establish all the necessary elements of his case, and the few meager arguments he did bring forth have been completely controverted. I am grateful for this opportunity to defend the true gospel of Jesus Christ and to the editor of this publication for allowing me the opportunity to share my views. I welcome any comments and questions. And there you have it. I think that my home address at the time was published along with this so that people who read this article and this debate could write to me and send me any comments and questions they had. And I was actually quite surprised to get, I think it was around two or three letters from different members of the Church of Christ. And all of them read the debate and all of them came to the same conclusion, that I got absolutely murdered in this debate and that I needed to leave Mormonism and become a member of the Church of Christ. It was incredible to me at the time, having looked at this and once again looking at it and thinking, man, I just cleaned this guy's clock. And yet, the people who are on his side reading it come away with a completely opposite impression. This was a big wake-up call for me in recognizing that debates really aren't very useful in persuading people, but they can be a lot of fun just the same. I took the same theory and practice into my debate with the Midnight Mormons in November of 2021 and had a great time doing it. So, that concludes the story about my debate with the Church of Christ minister back in 1990. There was actually another person back in Tennessee who must have been a member of the Church of Christ anyway. He was aware of this debate, and he asked us if we would come on his radio program to have the same debate. Well, we couldn't work that out. It is 1990. We don't have the internet. We don't have Zoom. So what we agreed to do was we agreed to record our three different affirmatives for him, my three different negatives for me, record them on audio tape, send them to this radio station in Kentucky or Tennessee, and then he would play them. I did record them. I did send them in. I'm not sure if he ever played them. I never listened to the show. I'm not sure if it made a big splash, but at least we gave him some free content to fill his airtime. So once again, that's about all for tonight. Thanks for listening. 
Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Thank you.